Amen. Well, thank you so much, worship team, for pointing us to Christ this morning and reminding us of this new world that we look forward to one day. And thanks, everyone, for your flexibility as we get our computer glitches worked out this week. Uh, we, it actually happened this morning. Of course, you know, it's Sunday morning when the computer misbehaves. Um, you know how it is. Those of you who have kids know how that rolls as well. So rather than trying to piecemeal something together in the back, we just decided to print it all and uh, move forward. So here we are, uh, Psalm 74. We're continuing our Summer in the Psalms series. We'll do just a few more lessons in our Psalms this year. And as I told you last week, my plan is to then move into another Another wisdom literature book, and that is the book of Proverbs, and we'll spend a little bit of time in Proverbs, and then I plan to look at Luke, the Gospel of Luke, starting around the Advent season, which if you are familiar with the first couple of chapters of Luke, it's all about the birth of John the Baptist and then the birth of Christ, and it's kind of amazing that we're actually talking about Advent and Christmas um, at this point as it's still 914 degrees outside. Actually, it was like 912 this week, so it was a little better. Um, but we are moving quickly towards that, and as we plan our year, we are really excited about the fall. Psalm 74, making our way through the Psalms. Some of you from my era will remember a happy little tune that the band R.E.M. released in 1991 called Shiny Happy People. Who's from my era out there? If you're too far ahead of me or too far behind me, you won't be familiar with that tune, and that's okay. Let me just tell you a little bit about it. It's sort of a whimsical, happy, carefree, really, really just memorable sort of tune where the phrase is often repeated, shiny, happy people. And it just sounds so happy and you dance around and it's just one of those real uplifting songs. Well, what you may not know about that particular tune is it was actually written to be a, in deep, deep irony. All of the lyrics are written with deep irony because it was actually a response to what happened at Tiananmen Square. Many of you will remember that as well, where political distance were put down by the Chinese army, and in a very memorable set of pictures and photos, there was one protester who was actually flattened by a Chinese tank. It threw the Chinese propaganda machine into high gear, and they began to create these posters talking about how great and how peaceful and how we're all happy, and the posters pictured shiny, happy people. And so the tune was actually written in contrast to that. And so there's irony in the lyrics of this really happy, carefree sort of ballad against the backdrop of something that's really dark and cynical and hard. And I think about that song sometimes, and I'm not necessarily recommending a particular band, just to be clear, this morning. But I do remember that from my, my middle school and high school days. And I think about that, and I think maybe sometimes some of y'all come to church and you feel like you're stuck in that. You ever feel that way? Where you come in and you're just supposed to be shiny, happy people, but you don't feel shiny nor happy. But you're just here this morning, and the standard response, how's your week, how are you doing, is what? fine, good. Those are two acceptable answers. I'm fine. I'm good. It was good. I'm fine. Fine, good. Good, fine. How are you? Fine, good. Good, fine. All right, what's for lunch? And I think, I think there's probably, maybe I'm speaking to a, a subset of people, but maybe it's broader than perhaps we even realize. There's some of you that don't feel fine or good. And you got things that bother you pretty deeply. And you may feel like you're stuck in this happy little ballad, but you don't feel fine or good because there's things that really bother you. There's things weighing on your mind and your heart and your soul and have kept you up this week, maybe beyond that. And you're feeling it this morning. We have got a psalm for you this morning, and it's really for all of us. 
as we walk through this. Because whether you are in the, in the uh, throes of lamenting something right now or not, you certainly will be at some point. I've titled the sermon, Lamenting the Lamentable, and intentionally a little bit redundant there because I do think we need to lament that which is lamentable. There are some things in our world that are, in fact, lamentable. As we jump into this psalm here this morning, I am aware that sometimes at a church like ours, and not just ours, but any church, you're trying to strike a little bit of a balance because we we don't make apologies for having music that's celebratory. We celebrate the gospel. We celebrate the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning. We're pretty happy about that, and we celebrate it, and some of you are very expressive in your worship, and I appreciate that. And we are, we are here and we are happy about what the Lord has done and you don't have to hold that back at all. But we also recognize that there's also a time for us to lament and be sad and mourn because there's reason to lament and be sad. Sometimes in Bible study, we talk about a concept called the already, not yet. Maybe you've heard it said now and not yet. It means that something has happened already, but there's something still to happen the not yet. And so we live in a little bit of this tension of we have great joy because of what has happened, but we have a sense of longing and expectation because of what yet hasn't happened. And so, so many of our songs, especially the the hymn psalms, songs, are really shaped towards that. The one that we'll sing at the end of our service is shaped towards that, this looking forward to what we get to enjoy. As we jump into Psalm 74, I want to give you a little bit of history before I read the psalm because I think this will help us to understand in a, in a little bit more color what's going on. A little bit of context. As you know, the book of Psalms, it wasn't just one person who sat down and wrote out all of the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms. Half of them are by King David, and then the other half are by various other authors. These Psalms here are attributed to Asaph, which we know is not just Asaph, he was an actual person who served in Solomon's court and then also David before him, so he kind of saw the transition of power. But it was also, these psalms are attributed to his sons, the ones who carried on, sort of like the sons of Korah. You'll see those psalms as well in the Bible. And so it's the psalms in line with Asaph and his tradition and family. This was the, the, the family musicians of Israel. And although this one isn't specifically time-stamped by a little, what's called a superscript, the little, you ever seen the little text before the text um, in a psalm? It's called a superscript. This one isn't time-stamped to tell us exactly what was going on, but by the words that are written, we can really deduce when it was, and this would have been around the destruction of the temple in 586, 587. Now, why is that so significant and important? I want to walk through a little bit of history, and then as we jump into the psalm, I think it will help us get a feel for what's going on. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God calls his people. They are slaves in Egypt. God calls his people out. He delivers them. You're familiar with the miraculous things that God did to gather his people, and he takes them out into the middle of nowhere, into the Sinai Peninsula, and they stay for about a year, and the reason they're out there is to learn how to live in fellowship with their God part of what they have to do is build a tabernacle. And so God shows Moses on the mountain this picture of a tabernacle and then gives him detailed instructions. For those of you who uh, do a daily Bible reading type of plan and maybe try to read through the whole entirety of the Bible in in, uh, a year or or some plan like that, 
Um, you might hit like Exodus 35, and you might be thinking, wow, did I just find a building code you know, from ancient Israel? That, and it, it almost sounds maybe foreign to us. We don't, may not expect that, but it's very specific. This is how the tabernacle is gonna be built. And so Moses builds the tabernacle, and God dwells with his people in that way. That eventually gives way to the temple, and then we have Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple, which I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. The tabernacle, I've used this picture before. I just think it's helpful to get an idea. This is a replica of what the tabernacle would have looked like. So in ancient Israel, when Israel moved from place to place, we read about their wanderings. This was what it would look like. They would set this thing up. Of course, there's some modern things here, and some of you will probably notice the power box on the outside wall. It, there was a certain power to the tabernacle, but it was very different than how this one operates um, today. So this is a replica. This is actually in Israel. It's in Timnah, uh, Israel. And this is a replica, and you can actually go tour this um, today if anybody's looking for a field trip uh, this week. That would be pretty neat to see. And so it's, a, it's not that impressive maybe for us as we look at that. It's just a tent. So inside of there, though, is something like this. There are three parts. There's an outer court, there's a holy place, and the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant would be stored. The holy place, the priest could go into. The most holy place, only the high priest. It was just, it's not that big of an area. The most holy place, only the high priest, only one day out of the year, and it was only by making the proper sacrifices to enter. This becomes the footprint, basically, of what the temple is going to be. All right? So let's fast forward a little bit in our timeline. We just talked about Moses, and if you noted the dates on the previous slide, Moses was around 1500-ish. Remember, it's BC, so we're counting down. Moses is around 1500. Good reason to think the Exodus happened around the 1540s, and so we're just fast-forwarded about 500 years, and this is how Israel has been operating. This was where they met God, uh, was at the tabernacle. The tabernacle has now been moved to the land of Israel. They're not wandering anymore. It's stationary. But it's not a temple, really. It's the tabernacle. So what happens is David, the king of Israel, he wants to set up and build a house for God. He said, God's living in a tent. We're living in real houses now. We've moved into the land, and God's still out there in a tent. So we need to build him a house. God says, no, actually, David, good idea. Your son's going to build the temple but I'm going to build a house for you, meaning a lineage for David. And this is when we have the Davidic covenant that's made, one of the key points in Old Testament and really in biblical history. David's son, Solomon, takes over. He builds the temple. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, David spends the rest of his life collecting materials, and it's ornate. It's gigantic. An artist's rendition, it would look something like this, um, this incredible place. So serious upgrade from the tent that we had before. Solomon builds the temple, and this, is, this was the temple that would stand until 586, 587, around in there, um, B.C. But something happens. Solomon doesn't follow the Lord. He marries, the Bible tells us, many foreign women. They pull his heart away from God. He allows false worship to go on throughout the land of Israel. The kingdom ends up dividing after Solomon. The Lord told Solomon, the kingdom's gonna stay together as long as you're alive, but after you, it's gonna split, it's gonna fracture, 
Israel's going to be a big, big mess, and so the kingdom divides. The northern kingdom ends up falling in 722, and then the southern kingdom falls in 586. Well, if you look at a map at the divisions, Jerusalem, where the temple was, is in the south. So the southern kingdom falls to the Assyrian army, and that's where we find our story um, here today, is the fall of that temple. All right? I tell you all that to say this. I think some of us watched with horror over the last... I don't know, what was it, four or five years ago when ISIS was moving through the Middle East and parts of Syria and Iraq and Iran and other places, we watched with horror as they desecrated and destroyed some some ancient relics, and it's really sad and hard to watch, and they just sort of maliciously went in and destroyed everything that they came across. This is what happens here in Israel, but we're not just sad because we lost historical place or marker. What happens is it's like God got defeated when the temple falls. And so this would have been a huge, huge issue for the people. It was so important. So you'll notice there's a little gap between Solomon's temple and what becomes Zerubbabel's temple. Psalm 74 sort of fits in that gap, all right? So this is a reflection on the time when Israel didn't have a temple. They return eventually, and rebuild a temple that wasn't as glorious as Solomon's temple, but that's where we are, Psalm 74. We believe that this fits pretty well, the descriptions of what we see in the scripture about the fall of Jerusalem. 2 Kings 25 and verse 9, this is Nebuchadnezzar who was leading the charge on this, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. All right, so it fits very well with the description. Okay, with that as history, let's move forward into our psalm. Let me read it for us, and then I'll give you an outline to help organize our thoughts this morning. Psalm 74, a maskal of Asaph. Note the brokenness and hurt that comes out of this, especially the first part. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. and all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your holy name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet, and there's none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your your hand, your right hand, Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet, my king, my God, my king is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. 
Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the, inhabita- of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. I think this psalm offers us a perfect template on how to lament, how to deal with bad, bad things. Number one, recognize brokenness and loss. If you'll notice in verses one through eight, as we read it, you notice that the psalmist here, he doesn't try to convince you that it's not actually bad. I think some of us, that's the only way that we know how to deal with something, is we just try to convince ourselves, well, it's not that bad. And we try to convince ourselves, well, maybe this, isn't a, this is a good thing in the long run. That may be true in the ultimate theological sense, but I'm just here to tell you, and you can speak to this by experience, there are bad things in the world. There are bad things that happen, and it's just okay to say it. Recognize the brokenness and loss. It's not good that the temple fell. It's not good that the Assyrians are coming in. Now, just remember, this is in light of an invading army coming in, the Assyrians. They are bad, bad, bad dudes, bad people. And as they come marching in, the people are watching with amazement because there's no UN that's going to step in, that's going to organize a force and stop these bad guys. There's no convention that's going to be convened after this to hold people accountable for war crimes. There's none of that. The Syrians were known as bad, bad people. There's another prophet that wrote right before this all happened. So right before this went down, another prophet named Habakkuk. Habakkuk is an interesting little book. It's only a few chapters. But the story is Habakkuk is talking back and forth with God. So he offers a complaint to God. God answers him, and so the dialogue goes back and forth. Habakkuk is looking around the land just before this invasion and says, God, this place is so messed up, you gotta do something about it. There's rampant injustice and wickedness. And God hears his prayer and says, oh, I'm gonna do something, all right. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna bring the Assyrians. But wait, (laughs) time out. Um, That's not really what I was after? Uh, No, 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 we need to to kill the Assyrians. But God is raising up the Assyrians in order to bring his judgment. God's own description of the Assyrian army is this. Just before the invasion, they all come for violence. This is the army, the soldiers. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. These are the people that are moving into Israel. What are you going to do? Well, there's not much you can do as far as stopping this invasion from happening. Nice guys, huh? It does remind us of some of what we watched a few years ago, watching these people destroy important historical markers, important cultural places. But it was so much more than that, as I mentioned a minute ago. The place of God was integrally linked in the people's minds, both foreign and in Israel, to their God himself. 
When we went through Exodus, a few of you will remember this, we went through Exodus, I think part of what's going on in Exodus, Exodus 12, 12, it says that God did all of these plagues, these portents, these signs, and part of that was in judgment against the gods of Egypt. So you can read about that in Exodus 12 and verse 12. Against the gods of Egypt, I did this. So the defeat of Egypt was the defeat of her gods. Those were seen as very much together. So the fall of Jerusalem was seen, I actually found an old Assyrian newspaper, I wanted to show you that. Old Assyrian, this is from the Assyrian Assyrian Chronicle in 586 BC. It's amazing what the internet can do these days, isn't it? This is how the people would have read the headlines though. Yahweh's been taken out. There is no true God. It was all a fraud. See, they said their God dwelled on this hill in this temple and they had these gradations of holiness and if you went the most holy place, you're gonna be struck dead. Guess what? We took the whole place out. God didn't do a thing. That's the perspective. And so the people are just feeling absolutely gutted. And that's why, if you go back to verse one, they feel like they've been cast off. And they're reminding God of the covenant. God, didn't you say we were your people? What's happened? Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anchor smoke against the sheep of your pasture? We're your congregation. You purchased us. You can read that now with a little bit different light. God, you got to come back to this place. You got to clean this up. What are you going to do? The descriptions of these people. Verse 4 Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. So it's drawing imagery like a lion. They've roared like lions. There's no signs. Our signs are gone, meaning most likely the, the signs of some sort, something to do with the cultic worship of the day. Uh, they've replaced our signs, our tools for worship, and they've put theirs in place. Their gods have substituted for our true God. They were like those who swing axes in a forest. They came in and just indiscriminately destroyed the temple. And they carved its wood. They broke it down. They're arsons, and they're enslaving your people and dragging them off. This is the description. Lamenting the lamentable. This is lamentable, and it's okay to lament it because it's incredibly sad. I think today, sometimes we, we're, we're a little bit conditioned maybe by, uh, maybe it's social media, maybe it's just TV culture, visual culture in general, but we have this tendency that everything has to be funny. You'll notice that? Like, you, you just have to deal with everything with humor. There's just some things in life that aren't funny. It's just not, it's very serious. It's very hard. And I love to laugh. I love to have a good time. You probably won't have a conversation with me where we don't joke about something. Um, I, I, find, I find life to be incredibly amusing and I, I love to laugh and joke and have a good time. But there are times and there are conversations and there are subjects that are just serious. And as Christians, we have a category for that. We can lament the lamentable. In our church family here, we're not dealing on a global scale quite like anything that Israel is dealing with, but personally, it might feel like the temple just got crushed for you. Maybe you got a diagnosis this week that maybe nobody else even knows about. Maybe you're dealing with surgeries, cancer, heart problems, family difficulties, strained relationships, tough situations at work, financial difficulties, loss of job. It's right to lament. It's right to say this isn't good. It's right. It's okay. We can lament the lamentable. 
How do we lament? Well, one, you have to recognize that it's okay to lament. And I just wanna, if you need a permission slip, I'll write you one later. You can, we can. We don't have to pretend like it's all just fine. Number two, how do we do this? Ask honest questions. As I walk through this as well, I wanna make sure, I know just an outline by nature of it being an outline, you tend to view it as steps. And I think there's a sense in which there's a logical order to this, but there's also a sense in which we're humans and it's not like just because you graduate from one, you're moving into two, all right? So there's a sense in which we rejoice and we lament at the same time and we're complex beings in that way. So I, I just wanna make sure, don't, don't just view this in a logical order, view this as just the experience of dealing with brokenness. That's, that's what it is. If I could somehow make this a visual, it's all happening at once <laughs> in, in our own hearts sometimes. Okay, number two, ask honest questions. Verse nine, we don't see our signs. There's no longer any prophet and there's none among us who knows how long. God, we seem pretty hopeless here. We don't see our signs. We don't see perhaps the miraculous signs of some of the prophets of the Old Testament. Perhaps, perhaps it's some of the relics that were used in worship. Regardless, we're not seeing that which reminds us that you're in control and that you dwell here. It's gone. The temple's been destroyed. Nobody's doing a thing about it. There's no prophet. There's some who have taken this verse and they would make a case, and this is, this is a possibility, they would make a case against this actually being um, and around the time of the exile and around the time of the destruction of the temple um, because there were prophets speaking during this time. You're familiar with some of those. Uh, there were prophets. But I just think, I don't think we have to press that verse too hard. I think we just recognize from the perspective of the psalmist at this particular point in time, he didn't see anybody that was gonna help. He didn't see a prophetic voice that was gonna lead. When things get really nasty, especially at a global level, we tend to look for a strong man to get us out of this, right? You've seen some of this actually recently in Ukraine where uh, the, the people really in the world has sort of coalesced around a, a leader, uh, President Zelensky. And so that's, that's just human nature. That's what people tend to do is who's gonna get us out of this? In Israel, in Egypt, when they were in Egypt, it was Moses, right? In early, uh, the early days of the monarchy, it was David, and then it was Solomon. We need somebody to walk us out of this. Who's gonna do it? And the psalmist is looking around saying, all I see is occupation in the streets. They're dragging us off. They're burning down our houses. They're taking us away. Babylon's winning. We don't know what to do. Ask honest questions. He asked, how long, O Lord? How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? How long are you gonna take this, God? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Are you gonna let this go on? Did you hear what they said about you? They said you couldn't do anything. God, what, what's up? Are you gonna do something about this or not? And then I love this phrase, the end of verse 11. He says, take it, that's your hand, take your hand from the fold of your garment and destroy them. God, if you would just pull your hands out of your pockets and just do something, one hand, you could wipe all of them out. Here's the thing. The why question is, we ask the why question of God because we actually believe God could do it, right? If you didn't think God could do anything about your situation, you wouldn't ask him why. Why don't you do it? Because if you just believe that he wasn't powerful enough, he didn't know or whatever the situation was. You ask God to do something because you believe he can do something. 
But oftentimes that leads to more frustration, doesn't it? Because we do know that God can do something and he hasn't. God, why do I still have this? Why am I still dealing with this? Paul asked the question, 2 Corinthians 12. This thorn in the flesh, how long, O Lord? God gave him a direct answer, actually, three different times. It's going to stay, and the reason is, because I've I've used you in incredible ways, Paul. I've given you these visions, allowed you to write scripture, allowing you all of these gifts and things that I've done for you. I gotta do something to keep a governor on you, or you would be too prideful. That's Paul's answer. Why, God, do you do this? Why do you allow bad things to happen? It's okay to ask the question. Just be prepared that you may not get the answer that you exactly want when you ask the question. Ask honest questions. You don't have to pretend like it doesn't exist. God can handle it. Next, remember God's character. When you find yourself stuck in your own head and you can't get your minds off your troubles, and I would even say, when you can't get your mind off your temptations and sins, sometimes the best thing you can do is think bigger thoughts about God. Just, I need a bigger view of God. That helps everything in your life. One of the best ways is to get perspective on your troubles by thinking about God. Yes, we have major issues. Yes, we don't know how we're gonna get the Assyrians out of here. We don't know if we can. Yes, this army is advancing, but I I'm gonna do a little historical musing at this point, and I'm gonna remember who my God is and what he's capable of. How does he do that? He goes all the way back to creation. God is eternal. Look at verse 12. Yet, so there's a contrast in the tone marked off by this word, yet. Yet God, my king, is from old. He's, he's been here. He's seen it all. He's the eternal one. Working salvation in the midst of the earth. He's up to something, reminding yourself of God's plan. And then he says, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Now there's a lot going on um, here. He says, God is the one. He divided the sea by his might. There's a motif here. Uh, I like that word when you're doing biblical studies. There's a motif of this water and chaos. Remember how the Bible starts out? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what was the, what was the state of the world? It was this watery chaos. And so, and this is interacting, I believe, with some of the ancient myths, especially from the Canaanite myths, where the water, this watery chaos was viewed as disorder. And so God comes down and he divides this, he cuts through it, and he creates order out of disorder. He also divides the water again. You know that story, the uh, the, the Red Sea incident when God split the water. So I think there's some other myths that are floating around about the Canaanite gods and especially with his reference to Leviathan here. Leviathan really is more, it's less of a thing and more of a concept that we need to understand in the Bible. Used in Genesis 1.21, it's also used to refer to great serpents like in Exodus 7. And in the Canaanite myth, Leviathan was this seven-headed monster that signified chaos and death. And so what I think the psalmist is doing here, notice he said, you crushed the heads, plural, verse 14, of Leviathan, you gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. It's a polemic against their God. Your God isn't the true God. Our God crushed your God. Our God's better than your God. He, he didn't get conquered by the watery chaos. He created the water itself and he put order in the chaos. And so 
that's sort of lost on us. Like, you probably wouldn't just read that and go, oh, yeah, Canaanite myths. Uh, y- y- you wouldn't come to that. But we're, we're coming to the Bible from a long ways away, and we got we to gotta try to transport ourselves back and understand what's going on. And that's why some of these PhD types of guys that have read all of the material are so helpful for us, because most of us aren't reading that stuff in our quiet times. I understand He goes on, you split open springs and brooks, you dried up ever-flowing streams. Again, many thought that streams and rivers had divine authority. There was some sort of a deity attached to a stream. He says, no, our God controls where the water is. He also controls the sun and the moon. Those aren't their own gods. Our God is the true God who created those things, and he created time. He created it all. And so the psalmist is looking, and remember, this would have been viewed as a battle of gods, Yahweh's been defeated. Oh, no, he hasn't. (laughs) No, 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 no. He hasn't been defeated at all. In fact, he's the one that controls all this same God. This is the God, the God who controls all, who made all, and he's in covenant with this particular people. And so they're working to remind themselves of who he is and what he's done. Many have wrestled with the idea of God's existence and the existence of evil in the world. I know many people have wrestled with that. I'm sure you've thought about that. It's really a Christian problem, though, because what is evil, after all? It has to be compared to a standard. And so he's interacting with this question. Remember God's character. I hope that you have regular reminders of the gospel and God's goodness and character in your life. That's part of what corporate worship is. David reminds us of this often. Let's not gather together without remembering the gospel. Remember the death, resurrection of Christ. That's what we do when we celebrate communion. We remember the gospel. We remember God's character and his nature. That's part of what we serve to do here. But it's not the only place you need to be reminded of God's character and his goodness. You need your own time where during the week you are reminding yourself of who God is and what he's done. Doesn't mean you can't recognize brokenness in the world even in your own family, your own situation, just remember that God is good. Remember these wonderful, awesome things that he's done. Next and last, ask God to act. Ask God to act. Let me just make sure that we're clear here. We don't have to be fatalist. I know many of us take a perspective on life that God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all things. I do, sign me up for that. But you've probably heard the joke about the Calvinist who fell down the stairs and he stood up, brushed himself off and said, man, I'm glad that's over. And I, I think some of us maybe approach life with a little bit of a like, oh man, well, it's God's will. And it, almost in a glib sort of way. We, we don't have to pretend like things are good that aren't good. All right, yes, God's in control. Yes, he's gonna use it all for his glory. Yes, sign me up, I'm in. He declares the end from the beginning, of course. There's also a number of appeals in the Bible to God doing something, to changing it. It's not good that the Assyrians are there. It's not good that the temple's being destroyed. Look at what he says, verse 18. Remember this, O Lord. The enemy scoffs. Foolish people reviles your name. Lord, there's, did you hear what they said about you, God? This isn't good. They're reviling you. They're scoffing. Verse 19. Do not deliver the soul of your dove. <laughs> Israel's viewed as this tender little dove to the wild beast. They don't stand a chance. 
Do not forget the life of your poor forever. So he, he, Israel's the underdog in this story. The, the, we're the dove, they're the wild beast. We're the poor, they're the rich. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitation of violence. We're downtrodden, verse 21. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Lord, humanly speaking, we have no answer for what's going on here. We know that throughout biblical history, there's so many stories. We could spend a while talking about all the stories where God won against all odds. You could probably think of a few of those. We've referenced the Exodus story a couple of times. They weren't even soldiers. They were farmers there in Egypt and shepherds and such. Builders as well, but they weren't soldiers. And they managed to get away from the Egyptian army, but it wasn't their own doing. God did it. God fought the battle for them. Maybe a story like 2 Kings 19, just before this invasion, where God takes out a whole, a whole battalion. He strikes them down. The angel of the Lord comes and strikes them down. 2 Kings 19. And we have the ultimate story, the story of Christ, which is a lamentable story, but it's a story of one who seems defeated, but ultimately wins in the end. Let's think about it. Let's think about why the gospel story starts out with a lamentable act. It's sad what happened. Not only, it isn't just the temple of the old covenant. This is the true temple, God himself dwelling among people. They destroyed the new perfect temple, Christ himself. God sends his son. He embodies love, truth, holiness in the world. Some people follow him, but many people hate him. His three very tumultuous years of ministry before conspiracy hatches, his own circle turns on him. At least Judas, one within his circle. The rest run off like scaredies when the real bullets start to fly. They make up stories. They pay off witnesses. They have this kangaroo court breaking all kinds of their own laws, this mockery of justice, and then Christ is killed. Now, if the story stopped there, it is nothing but a lamentable story. It's sad. But of course, we move from lamenting to rejoicing. Jesus defeats death. He walked through that for us. Walked through that so that we can be made right with him. Reminds us of the return of Christ at the end. All wrongs will be made right. It will happen. The Syrians, they may seem to get away with things for a little while. The Persian army may seem to get away with things for a little while. Boko Haram may seem to get away with things for a little while. ISIS, the Nazis, may seem to get away with things for a little while. You need to understand it won't stay that way. It won't end that way. There's an arc and a balance to this idea of lamentation. Yeah, we can recognize brokenness. Yeah, we can feel it very deeply, but we don't have to, we don't have to wallow in it. We, can, we have something better. We have hope. Remind ourselves of how God has acted in the past. It's an indicator of how he's gonna act in the future. In just a moment, I asked David, I normally try not to do this uh, too often to our music team, but I asked him if he could move this song, It Is Well, actually to after the sermon today. He had already had it scheduled uh, for today, and I asked him if we could do it after, because I think this song really embodies a type of lament that will be helpful for us. So as we think through what we just talked about of recognizing something that's broken, asking questions of God, reminding ourselves of God's character, and then looking to God for the future, remember this song. 
I won't go through the whole history of the hymn, but just a little bit in case this is maybe new information. Horatio Spafford was a Chicago businessman. This was the early 1900s. And he lost almost everything in the Chicago fire. And he had sent his uh, wife and their four daughters off to England, and he was going to catch up with them a little bit later. Well, that ship has a wreck, and it sinks, and only his wife is saved. So the context is he's lost four of his daughters. He ends up traveling over to meet up with his wife in England, and this song is a reflection on his loss. And notice the arc of the song. There's sorrows, there's weeping, there's sadness, but it doesn't stop there. It's well because it does ultimately end well with God in heaven, making good on his promises. Let me pray for us and I'll invite our musicians to come and lead us. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have today. Thank you that we can come and look at a psalm like this, a psalm that reminds us it's okay and right and good for us to lament, for us to recognize brokenness in the world And Lord, I pray that this would not cause us to lose our faith, though we may ask questions. We may have fears and doubts, suspicions, but I pray that ultimately this would cause us to dig deep into your character and nature. There's explanations beyond simply eliminating God from the equation. That doesn't fix anything. We still have the problems. And so, Lord, help us to lean hard into the promises of God. Help us to see how you've worked in history, how you've never, never abandoned your people. And Lord, this whole exile from the land, this destruction of the temple, it all happened because they neglected your covenant promises. It happened because their hearts weren't with you. It happened because they disregarded you. And so this is what they got. It was predicted long, long ago that this is how it would go. So Lord, for us, regardless of where everyone is this morning, maybe there are issues that are deeply sad and bring great sorrow on maybe some people in here this morning. I pray that these words and this psalm would bring comfort and peace. For those maybe that aren't walking through a time of uh, intense personal lament, help us to be sensitive and open and to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, and recognize that there are seasons of life that each one of us walk through. Help us to be sensitive to that. Lord, maybe there's another category of person in here that's maybe not trusted you as their savior. Maybe they don't really know what it means to follow Jesus and to be a, one who is a disciple of his. Use your words, use this message, we pray, to show them their need for Christ, their need for something so much deeper and better than just what we can find out there in the world. We pray in Christ's name, amen.